In our series, A String of Pearls, Dutch Buzz contributors speak to people who have made an exceptional contribution to our local community. People whose passion for what they do have had an added value for the city of The Hague. The Hague entrepreneur and voiceover artist Roger Thurman has lived in the city of peace and justice long enough to be fully integrated and to have moved on from being an expat to a retiree. Roger offered his voice for use on Dutch Buzz jingles more than a decade ago, and we've taken great pleasure in hearing his baritone voice during our broadcasts. Today he is our guest on Dutch Buzz, and we have made him one of our pills for his services to Dutch Buzz and our international community. Roger, you've lived in The Hague for more than 40 years now. How has the role of what we call expats changed in that time? And how has The Hague itself evolved in your experience of the city? Well, um, how has the role of the expat changed? Uh, not in many ways, except I think probably in far greater numbers of services and uh, support activities. Uh, by which uh, the city is more attuned to the needs and aspirations and so forth of um, uh, of folks other than the Dutch. Uh, it is a great place to be, filthy weather of course, but uh, that's an English export, we can't do anything about that. And there are a number of sort of organizations serving uh, the needs of expats and of course English is uh, the major um, lingua franca of uh, not only the expats but of course many of the Dutch as well. Um, no, it's a, um, it's a beautiful city to live in, uh, lots and lots of green space, uh, fabulous uh, museum and um, a great sort of, uh, yet at the same time of course it's a nice quiet uh, little backwater in some ways. Um, no, lots of nice things to say about The Hague. How has it evolved uh, over the last 40 years? Well, probably as a result of that famous peace conference in 1899, when, I forget which queen it was, it might have been Wilhelmina, uh, offered the world the location for the, the first international peace conference. Um, the world was trying to find a place where they could um, uh, actually talk primarily about the rules of war. Um, but of course nobody could really accept uh, London, uh, the French wouldn't agree to, Paris, the British wouldn't agree to, and it was the whole darned world. Uh, and so little Netherlands, uh, no aspirations for sort of bullying or uh, overdoing their role, said why don't you come to The Hague? And so it, be, so it became the location for the world's first peace conference. Now, since then, um, it has gone on to host, I think probably now, hundreds of organizations which are associated with uh, uh, international peace and um, jurisprudence between uh, nation states. Uh, it's quite impressive. There are a lot of lawyers, international lawyers especially in The Hague, do you feel it's lived up to its role as the city of peace and justice? Well, it's doing its best. Uh, you know, um, peace and justice are um, uh, things which are hard to find in today's world. Um, it's uh, constantly a challenge uh, to keep neighbors from kicking each other's um, uh, you know, supports out from their seats. 
And um, so the role of The Hague in um, offering a center of discussion and negotiation is, has become a lot more important. Whether it has always been a success, of course, is uh, another question. There's uh, an awful lot of argument in international politics, and The Hague, of course, is not in a position to uh, solve those uh, contretemps. But on, on, a, on, a, on a par, or rather looking at its contribution as a contributor to, uh, to world peace, I think um, it's done very well. Now, we uh, spoke earlier about the role of the expat. You said not much change, but I do think that COVID, uh, the pandemic, has been quite a big blow. Uh, their numbers apparently have shrunk here in The Hague. Um, is this breed going extinct? Well, the breed of the international visitor to The Hague, oh no, not at all. Uh, the Hague will benefit enormously from Brexit, of course. Um, expats like the relatively relative simplicity of living in The Hague. It's got the sea close by. Um, and so uh, all nature lovers uh, have what they want. It's very easy. One of the great things about The Hague, actually the Netherlands as a whole, is it's, it's easy to get out of. Um, you know, you jump in the car and two or three hours uh, you're in uh, different language um, domains, um, four hours to Paris and so on and so on. It's very convenient from that point of view. The social scene between expats and the Dutch is also very rich. There are French clubs, German clubs, English clubs. There are um, schools um, serving all of the different uh, age groups of children from different cultures. And um, broadly speaking, it is a very, very international city. It's often in the top three best places in the world to bring up children. I know you have two. Has that been the case for you too? Well, uh, we had a lot of thinking, uh, Mama and I, about where we should uh, educate the kids. And um, it was quite unanimous. Uh, the Dutch have an excellent uh, primary, secondary and tertiary uh, education system. Um, the standards are high. Um, the social interaction is much less, or rather, the social layering is much less than in places like the UK and the US. And of course, um, kids get this great opportunity of learning relatively easy, easily learning foreign languages. So they're sort of already international by the time they're sort of nine or 10 years old. Now you transitioned from being an expat long time ago uh, to being yeah, quasi Hagenar. What were the benefits of learning Dutch and integrating? Oh, a world of frustration for the first five years. Um, the key was, of course, you had to be willing to make a fool of yourself in public. Uh, I won't go into the details, but everybody who's um, confronted with learning Dutch um, knows the embarrassing moments and the need for courage and be willing to look a fool. Um, uh, and so that's really uh, the great stepping stone. Uh, women, of course, handle learning languages much easier than men. Um, uh, for very uh, well, brain structure and the yes, brain structure primarily, I think. Um, and um, so, yes, I would say that um, choosing between educating your children 
in a monolingual environment such as the UK or the US and The Hague or indeed Paris or Munich or uh, Bern, um, uh, it's, uh, it's an obvious, it's, it's as some people call it a no-brainer. Uh, you learn so much more, the brain benefits from uh, the extra development of that ling linguistic corner of the brain. Um, so I would say that the advantages are extremely broad and um, the Dutch have succeeded in having their children be happier, according to many uh, opinion polls, than many other countries of the world, in fact possibly most. Now I know one of your uh, pet hates, if I can call it that, uh, are these screens that children, adolescents, even the parents are like permanently transfixed by. Uh, what's happened to the spoken and the well, written word? The written word versus the spoken word, yeah. Um, the, the world is now, uh, sadly, disastrously, I think, giving up reading. Uh, young people, I think, in the United States are in some sectors now no longer obliged to learn to write. Their handwriting is di actually disappearing. Uh, and... Um, uh, so it, it's in, in a sense we are um, victims of that great uh, one-eyed monster, the television screen, and we have given up reading the works of great authors, which to me is an absolute tragedy. Um, I don't know whether, can I quote um, Mr. Dahl for you? Well, Mr. Dahl, Roald Dahl to us. Um, God rest his soul, um, was a wonderful poet, a great storyteller, and a bit of a naughty fellow from time to time, I understand. But anyway, he wrote a marvelous uh, poem uh, called Television, which was a diatribe against electronics and a support for the written word. I don't know whether you want to hear yes, it. Yes, do share it with us, Roger. Well... It's called television. And may I point out to our listeners that you're reading this off the screen? This, yes, I didn't remember this. Anyway, television by Roald Dahl. The most important thing we've learned, so far as children are concerned, is never, never, never let them near your television set. Or better still, just don't install the idiotic thing at all. In almost every house we've been, we've watched them gaping at the screen. They loll and slop and lounge about and stare until their eyes pop out. Last week in someone's place, we saw a dozen eyeballs on the floor. They sit and, they sit and stare and stare and sit until they're hypnotized by it. Until they're absolutely drunk with all that shocking, ghastly junk. Oh yes, we know it keeps them still. They don't climb out the windowsill. They never fight or kick or punch. They leave you free to cook the lunch and wash the dishes in the sink. But did you ever stop to think, the <laughs> to wonder just exactly what this does to your beloved tot? It rots the sense in the head. It kills imagination dead. It clogs and clutters up the mind. It makes a child so dull and blind. He can no longer understand a fantasy, a fairyland. His brain becomes as soft as cheese. His powers of thinking rust and freeze. He cannot think, he only sees. 
All right, you cry, all right, you'll say, but if we take the set away, what shall we do to entertain our darling children? Please explain. We'll answer you this by asking you. What used the darling ones to do? How used they keep themselves contented? Before this monster was invented, have you forgotten, don't you know? We'll say it very loud and slow. They used to read. They read and read and read and read, and then proceed to read some more. Great Scott Gabzooks, one half their lives was reading books. Roger, delightful, and I think it's very obvious to our listeners why Dutch Buzz asked you many years ago to do our jingles for us because of your beautiful baritone verse. How did you roll into voiceovers? Well, I was invited by a, an agent to come along and do some tests. Um, and uh, that all worked out. Uh, I went into the studio and uh, learned a little bit about uh, camera, uh, camera uh, microphone technique. Um, the do's and don'ts, which is actually a lot more than uh, you would imagine. It's quite tough to get words from paper uh, onto uh, the old tape as we would have called it. Um, but you learn, the, you learn the trade and um, the voices, of course, we hear all around us. Uh, they are such common material that we put them up as, in a sense, our um, uh, wallpaper. But of course, uh, some voices uh, stick like glue uh, and are instantly known, particularly, of course, those uh, folk who are film stars and famous politicians and so on and so on. Um, so uh, the, the, the great skill in uh, reading for the mic is, I'm sorry, recording for the mic is reading. And there are an awful lot of people with beautiful voices, but who cannot read uh, clearly. They don't time it right. Um, they have some sort of drawback. And it's really quite fascinating how um, you do need for a voice either on uh, television or, f or radio uh, or indeed in the commercial world with advertising and so on. You need a voice which um, can take uh, the intended um, message from paper normally uh, although nowadays it's a screen, and uh, put it into sound. And that is still an art which quite a few people do not possess. Uh, but we've got them, you know, all over the, all over, um, the, uh, the Dutch radio system and internationally and so on. Um, one of the things, curiously, is it's the speed of reading does not, uh, is not the factor which determines how uh, understandable a text is. It's the gaps, the tiny little gaps between words which allows the listener to separate out the word within a sentence. And of course there are all sorts of special computer programs which can clean up um, spoken texts. Um, and there you have it, you know, we are surrounded by the spoken word and completely take it for granted. Um, but it's, uh, it's a fascinating world to be actually in it and be part of the production uh, operation. So together, of course, with the extraordinary guys behind this in the sound studios. 
Well, we've, we've been delighted to, to have heard your voice over the years, Roger, and I hope you'll continue to help us in that respect. Now to something totally different. You spend half of your year in the United States. What would you say are the main differences between Dutch and American cultures? And um, what draws you to dwell in these two worlds? Well, uh, you know, the Netherlands is small, um, very dense in all senses, lots of people, lots of activities, um, easy transport, or rather easy déplacement uh, between locations, very convenient. The, the United States, of course, is quite the opposite. It's absolutely huge, um, with some very, very wild country and indeed some very wild people. Um, the fact that The Hague can access numerous different cultures makes it a highly colorful place, whereas of course in the United States, it's monolingual uh, English with the exception of the Southwest and all the Spanish, which is also exciting. Um, deserts, um, massive mountains, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wild man, it's an outdoor man's world. Whereas the Netherlands does not have, uh, you know, the Switzerlands and the deserts uh, and the wildernesses that are so uh, exciting, particularly in the United States. Uh, the, the American people, of course, are quite extraordinarily friendly and hospitable and generous, um, whereas the Dutch are a little bit more, what should I say, hesitant before opening up to um, strangers. Um, they are quick with an opinion um, and um, generally, I've got to say, most of the time right. Um, but for a, for instance, an Englishman getting used to uh, the Dutch way of, ex of expressing their opinions, it is fairly brutal. Um, it takes uh, the Brits quite a long time to separate uh, directness from bad manners, and some people never quite get over the shock. <laughs> now, I think uh, the pandemic has dealt blows to both, well, to all continents across the world. What are you hoping will emerge after this time? Well, I think COVID, uh, I think an awful lot of people um, have discovered that the protesters do have a point. A, the, the central government, uh, the uh, medical services, and the so-called experts on uh, transmissible diseases and this sort of thing uh, have um, basically um, controlled social interaction over the past two, two and a half years, uh, with the consequence that a lot of people have been, you know, tediously and unpleasantly affected, being locked up and having to follow all sorts of rather irritating um, uh, rules and regulations. Um, tough to be certain about um, how it will develop. I think everything will probably just gently return to a degree of normality. The, human, um, the humans within, well, across the, across the world, um, will benefit from all of the um, uh, the natural defenses they've been able to build up and um, uh, I think within 12 months time it will hopefully um, be uh, simple, simply uh, past tense. Should we hold on to any of the lessons learned? 
Well, I think that yes. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a medical man, but although I had a scientific upbringing, um, there are a lot of lessons that we can and have learned from this. And undoubtedly, uh, the viral threat to humankind is fairly significant. So um, I'm just hoping that uh, governments learn from each other and their own internal um, lessons and so forth, uh, such that it becomes much more a standard um, problem which can be handled in st with standard um, responses, rather like the traditional um, vaccination of children against um, polio and measles and so forth, um, which has been immensely successful. No, I, I think we'll gently move back to uh, the situation before COVID, but always with our antenna fully extended, uh, checking out how things are in the real life or in the real world. Now that the Netherlands has literally opens its door again to the public, what are the first events, museums, uh, what are you going to do in the coming weeks? Well, you said it. Um, I'm not a, uh, uh, a music buff, and so I don't do great big outdoor uh, shows. But musea and museums are um, absolutely spectacular here. They're all close by. They are not expensive to visit. You can buy a museum cart, um, and that will keep you busy for uh, months. Um, the outdoors, of course, um, walking on the beach, um, the dogs will appreciate the freedom, methinks. Um, sport, um, of course, most people have been spending their time indoors watching uh, television. Uh, thank you, Roald Dahl. Um, but one can understand why um, the, uh, the average household has uh, dozens of Dutch um, television stations, but also access to um, vast numbers of foreign uh, television stations. So the range of, the range of um, indoor entertainment um, is, um, is large. I think that bars uh, for the sort of uh, the under 50 age group uh, will undoubtedly come back into their own. You know, the brown cafes in Amsterdam have been suffering undoubtedly in the last um, couple of years. Um, and what shall I say? The, the, uh, the, the, no skating, sadly, this winter. Um, but summertime, the great walking, the great walks and um, journeys out in the plot alone will entertain an awful lot of folk. On your bikes, folks. Uh, there you go. And that is, of course, something, I mean, any, any Englishman, any foreigner who has uh, done a reasonable amount of cycling in the Netherlands knows that um, it is just extraordinary where you can go and in what sort of safety um, on a bike. I love the way that the major organization serving the uh, car driver, the ANWB, um, in Dutch is known as the Algemeen Nederlands Wielerbond, uh, I think. Um, and that is actually an organization that was originally dedicated to serving the cyclist. So um, bicycles have, um, uh, have made an immense contribution 
And I think you might even make the point that a few of those gold medals won in the cycling, uh, in the um, uh, skating arena uh, at the Olympic Games were thanks to uh, all that exercise um, that bicycles give to the athletes. The, the, the skating and cycling use similar muscle systems. So there you have it, you know, the cycling and the skating country. Brilliant. I know you've watched the uh, Winter Olympics and the Dutch performance with great pleasure this year, Roger. Oh, indeed. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, it is quite extraordinary how to explain, or rather trying to explain, why it is that the Dutch uh, are so good uh, on long-distance uh, long, long um, uh, skating. And you begin to realize, I remember the very first time I saw 400-meter um, ice skating, I thought, these guys aren't working. It's all in slow motion, and they come around that bend, you know, right up ahead of you, and they're almost moving um, through honey. But of course, it's not once you yourself can skate and have skated, let's say, a 50 or 100 kilometer trip, uh, you realize that it's uh, a fascinating sport that requires delicacy in the push-off uh, to obtain maximum forward speed. And that is not learnt from one day to the other. Uh, the Dutch have been at it for hundreds of years and it's paid off, you know, it's got them a lot of PR. Gold, silver and bronze. Yeah. 17 was it in the end? I think so, something like that. I don't know if we did it. Sochi, I think the Dutch um, earned at least two, if not three, clean sweeps, you know, gold, silver, bronze. Um, I don't know if we've won any clean sweeps this time. Um, the rest of the world is catching up. Um, but it's always a delight to watch. And once you know how to skate, you know what to look for in a guy's or a girl's, um, uh, where are we, technique. Hats off to the ladies, because I think that this year, the Netherlands ladies Olympic athletes won more medals than any other country in the world. Roger Thurman, it's been a pleasure to hear your wonderful voice on Dutch Buzz and hear your opinions broad and wide. I do hope we can continue to make our jingles with you until kingdom come. Thank you, Roger. Well done. Lovely to talk to you. For Dutch Buzz, I'm Lillian Strobach. Dutch Buzz, your weekly dose of inspiration from some of the city's special people. Den Haag.